This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It's found on page 901 of your Pew Bible. John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of our Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you're with us this rainy Sunday morning. Um, Hey, we're about to jump into John 15. We're walking through John 14 through 16 as we consider Jesus's words in the upper room as he speaks to his disciples about what it means to have, um, what it means to trust him with a troubling heart. Um, For those of you following along with us, we didn't skip over the end of 14. We'll actually come back around and get that. We'll jump around a little bit as we walk through this. In fact, even in our passage today, we'll come back in a few weeks and talk about godly discipline. But this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to abide in Christ. So will you join me as we jump into this passage together? Living, speaking Jesus, you are alive, you have spoken, you are speaking through your word, through your spirit, and you alone contain life. All of that is true. It it is true. Would you speak now through your word? Would you speak to us what it means to be attached to you, what it means to actually uh, hold on to you, and what it means that you've held on to us, that we're in you and you're in us? God, even as I say that, um, I know that there's some of us who come into this room um, maybe with frustration or anxiety or uh, trouble in our hearts, saying like we've come to you, we've brought uh, burdens, needs, 
uh, desires before you, before you. We've set them at your feet. Even those of us who have labored on those things and it's felt like, I imagine there's many of us who are wondering, where are you moving? Like, where are you responding? Are you, do you see me? Do you hear me? Are, do you see the needs that I have? I'm asking you to do these things and where are you moving? Father, would you orient us around what you're doing? Would you orient us this morning about how you are speaking to us, about how you are feeding us and giving to us? Um, would you orient us around what it means that we are in you this morning so that we would have expectations that are in keeping with what you're doing, who you are, and what your will is, and that we would get in line with that? So God, speak to us now as we jump into this passage. I pray in your name, amen. <clears throat> hey, the, the question I want us to put on the table as we jump into John 15 is this question here. What do you believe is your most urgent need for us as a church right now? What do you believe is the most urgent, most urgent need for us as a church right now? Even maybe even broader than that, what is the most urgent need for us in the American church right now? Is it theological training? Like Jesus certainly took the Old Testament seriously. He used it to teach it. Is our greatest need to be more disciplined in our biblical thinking and scholarship? Is it generosity? Is it generosity? Jesus said to give anyone who asks us of us, is our greatest need to do more practical good in our city right now? Is it missions? Jesus commissions his church to go out and preach the gospel. Is our greatest need as a church to send more missionaries and plant more churches? Is it personal evangelism and discipleship? Like pretty good stuff. Like Jesus told us to actually share the gospel with people, to preach it and tell everyone that uh, everything that he's taught us is our greatest need to share the gospel more. Here's what I'm asking. What do you believe is the greatest need that we have as a church so that we can be a better church? Like what would make us what is the most urgent thing that would make us a better church? If you're answering this question, if you're thinking things like pushing back progressivism or far-right agendas, is it fighting the culture wars? Jesus certainly, certainly addressed his culture head on, oriented his disciples around his kingdom and how it works. Think about all the things on your newsfeed from gender and race and abuse and healthcare and all these different things that need to be addressed. Is our greatest need right now as a church to address those things? Perhaps you don't know how to answer this question, so let me help you a little bit further. What is it as you come in this morning that most troubles your heart for Redeemer Fellowship? As you come in here to worship, what is it that you're bringing in this morning that most troubles you for where we're at right now as a church? What is it that you most long for for us to be about here and now? Now, I don't, I don't list all the things that I listed to belittle those things. Actually, I think that all the things I listed are necessary and good things for us to be about. But there is a sense in which these urgent needs are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. Picture this, Jesus is with his disciples, his closest friends who have been with him every day for three years. And Jesus is giving his final words of comfort to them. And before he's betrayed, before he dies and resurrects from the grave, but then he leaves them to go be with the Father. He's leaving them 
Jesus has told them over and over and over again what's going to happen to him, and somehow uh, they're caught off guard by it. Like they're, they're completely dumbstruck. They're on their heels about what he's doing. Their teacher, who, who they've followed, is leaving them. This teacher whom they've left everything for, left their families, they've left their careers, they've left their cities and community. This teacher who told them that if they wanted to see the world changed, just follow him. And that teacher who they believed was God himself is no longer going to be with them. For three years, it felt like everything was building to some kind of resolution, even like a revolution. And something would give them everything that they longed for. That's what they're hoping for. In the next couple of days, Jesus speaks right now in John 15, and then he's gone. He speaks words of comfort to them, and then he's gone. And when he leaves, think about this, they're still under brutal Roman rule. Their spiritual leaders, the priests and Pharisees, are still hypocritical and corrupt. Hundreds of disciples that were following Jesus are going to betray him. They're going to say, crucify him, and they're going to scatter. And the disciples will be left trying to figure out what all of this meant. Was it a waste? What is going on here? In the final moments before he is betrayed by one of his closest friends, Jesus knows how this is going to hit his friends. And he tells them to not be afraid. They don't have to be perplexed. They don't have to be distraught, but they most certainly will be afraid, perplexed, and distraught. And Jesus tells his disciples, what you need in the next couple of days, what you're going to need to navigate the rest of your life in this kind of troubling world that weighs down on your heart, what you're most going to need to not be offended by the way that I work, what you need, and don't forget this, is to stay connected to me. That's what he's laying down on the table here. He's saying the most crucial thing you're going to need to walk through the next couple of days and the rest of your life is to remain connected to me. We're no different, man. In the midst of our life, no matter what's going on, even if things are going smoothly or you're walking through grief and struggles and pain, the most urgent need you have is to abide in him, to grow in your knowledge of him, to commune with him, to be in Christ, to be united with him. Open up your Bibles if you've closed them to chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to walk through verse 1 through 6. Open up your Bibles. Put your eyes on verse 1. I want to say out loud what Jesus has said, but I'm going to use my own paraphrase. Jesus is telling them, I am the vine. You are the branches. You are nourished by your spirit-affected union with me. I am in you and I give you life. You are in me and you draw on my resources in order to bear fruit for my Father's glory. In this relationship that we have, the heavenly Father is like a vine dresser who cares for the vine. So see the events and see the circumstances of your life as all part of his viticulture, including his use of his pruning knife for he wants to see you become more fruitful. Hey, my burden for us this morning is that our church has learned to organize, we've built, we've published, we've developed, we've administered programs, we've given, we've served, we've done all these things to expand, all these good things. But could it be that so many of us have come here this morning with trouble in our hearts? Could it be, 
Could it be that a large reason why the American church is declining? Could it be that a reason why we've had so much conflict over the last three years and uh, difficulty across lots and lots of different churches in our city and across the country and seeing large portions of people leave the church is because we've minimized staying connected to the vine. Now, you might say that this is the most important thing to you as a Christian, but does your calendar reflect that? Does your budget reflect that? Does the things you read and the things that you watch actually reflect this belief, this conviction that you have? And Jesus says, in the midst of a troubling world that will no doubt tempt your hearts to be troubled and weighed down, we must make this the most important thing to abide in him. It's the most critical, most urgent thing for us as a church to abide in him as the foundational orientation of your life. How do we do this? How do we abide in Jesus? That's my, that's my plan this morning is to kind of unpack that, to focus in on what does that mean for us. To do this, we'll use verse seven as an outline. Verse seven is divided into two sections. So look at it with me. The first half of verse seven says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. The second half is ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we'll take those in turn, unpacking what those mean. So let's begin with the first half by talking about what abiding in Jesus is. In this chapter, Jesus uses the word abiding 11 times. 11 times in one chapter. I mean, it's everywhere. He can't say it enough. He is trying to get our attention, right? Like this must be something really significant that he repeats this word just over and over and over. And at this point, we have to be kind of careful. At this point of reading through uh, this passage, we have to be careful. We must resist the temptation to see the word abide in verses one through six and then like let our eyes drift off the page as we imagine all the ways that we enjoy abiding in Christ, all the ways that we enjoy how we differently with our different personalities, our temperaments, our hobbies, our interests, enjoy abiding in Christ. And I've been in Bible studies and in conversations with people, with people where the, it kind of gets off track when somebody says, man, the way I enjoy abiding with Christ is... And they say like uh, studying theology or painting or taking nature walks. And they start talking about these different things. And the reality is how you like to think about abiding in, abiding in Christ isn't really a relevant factor. It's, it's really just not important. It's actually not where you start. Jesus actually gets to define what abiding in him looks like. He tells us how to abide in him in this passage. So let's not let our eyes drift from the page here. He says that we abide in him by letting his words abide in us. So Jesus is very specific. He says, the way I abide in you is that my words abide in you. What does that mean? Like what on earth is he getting at here? The best way to answer that, the best way to see what Jesus means is to back up to verses four and five. So let your eyes go back up to verse four. Jesus says, abiding in me and I in you. The result will be that you will bear fruit. And then in verse five, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears fruit. So there again, we see the pair, abide in me and I in you. And we abide in Jesus and he abides in us and both are connected to fruit bearing. It's kind of a pattern you see. And then in verse seven, it seems like he's gonna do that again. But instead of using the pair, he says, if you abide in me and I in you, Jesus, instead of using that pair of me and you and you and me, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words 
abide in you. Now, I think the point of this change is significant because it tells us practically how we abide in Jesus, how he abides in us. It tells us real practically what that even means. And this is a pattern that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul writes about his union in Christ in these terms. He says in Colossians 2.6, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. So how do we walk in him? He says a chapter later. His answer to that is in chapter three, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This gives us clarity on what it means to abide. Let the words of Jesus abide in us means letting Jesus abide in us speaking. That's what that means. Let Jesus abide in your life speaking. What does that mean? Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm about to depart from you. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect and leave and go be with the Father. But you've spent three long years with me. I've taught the crowds. I've pulled you aside and shared parables with you. I've talked to you about what I'm like, what I'm about, what the kingdom of God is about. I've told you all the things that I love. I've told you the things that I hate. Take all of those things that I've given to you, that all these words that I've said in front of you, take all of those things that I've spoken to you and let them dwell in you. Let them dwell in you. Remember everything that I've said and open the door of your heart to them. Open your heart to these words. Let my words rearrange you from the inside out. I'm not a silent guest in your life. I'm not silent. It's, it's not like I don't have any opinions or commands. My words are authoritative. My words matter more than any other words out there. My words matter more than any other words in here. My words are authoritative. My commands outline for you the way of my kingdom and the way of a full and eternal life. Let it bring light into your mind. Let it warm your affections for me. Let it subdue your will to mine. My word is an instrument used by the Spirit of God to nurture your relationship and your connection and your union to me and let it transform you into my image. That's what Jesus means, let my words be in you. Let me abide in you. That's what he's getting at here. What does that look like for us? What does that practically look like? <coughs> I think it most fundamentally means that God's word does things in us. <coughs> I think this means God's word does things in us. If he is the vine and we are the branches, the branches receive their life and nutrients from the sap of the vine, right? And Jesus is telling us that if you are attached to him, when you receive life from him, then you receive his words. Like a branch receives life from the vine, then the truth of Jesus' words change you from the inside out. Your desires, your hopes, your longings, your affections, his words produce life in you. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 13. He says he rejoiced that they had accepted the word of God. And then here's what he says that that means. Not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in the believer. His words actually do work in you. They change you from the inside out. But not only that, he says, not only does the word of Jesus abide in us in order to do things in us, it's also in us so we do things. 
It, it doesn't just do things in us. It actually is in us so that we do things like obey him, like actually orient our lives to him. You see, we've already established when Jesus says that he wants to abide in us, it is interchangeable with his words abiding in us. Now, here's what, I, here's what you have to understand about Jesus. Jesus is never present somewhere that his lordship and rule and power is not also fully present. Does that make sense? If he is Lord and God and ruler, he can't be somewhere where his commands and his power and his lordship isn't also fully present. In other words, he never comes without an authoritative view on things. To have him abiding is to have his views abiding in us. If he abides, his views abide. If he abides, his priorities abide. If he abides, his principles abide. If he abides, his promises also abide. If he abides, his commandments abide. In short, if and when Jesus abides in you, his words abide in you. Now, what does this mean for letting the words of Jesus abide in us? It means that we don't just simply read the Bible and check a box that Jesus is abiding in us. Like, it can't just mean that, right? It, it can't also mean that we've memorized or meditated on a piece of scripture, and just because we've been, like, we can rogue memory say some words that Jesus said that somehow Jesus is abiding in us. Say, like, it, it can't mean that. It also can't mean that you just show up on a Sunday and hear the truth of God read out loud, and you've heard it, and you've heard a preacher talk about it and exhort you, and somehow now for the rest of the week you're abiding in Jesus. Like it can't, it can't mean that. Like we all kind of like get that, right? Like you can't just read the Bible, hear things about Jesus, and think that you're abiding in him. It means that we have to seek the words of Jesus then as living words, as living words. They're not just words on a page. They're not just words to memorize. They're not just things that are said that tickle our ears or things that we could half agree with or whatever. They have to be living words. What do I mean? His words are not coming at us in the abstract like a book that gives you some inspiring quote. His words don't, you know, they're, they're not things that you can just like memorize in your mind, like a theorem or an axiom that, you know, you learned in geometry class but never put into practice in your life, but you know it. That, that's, that's not what his words are coming at you like. It's not like reading a book from an ancient teacher and mulling over the wise counsel. It's not like any of those things because Jesus is alive. He's alive. He has spoken and he's speaking today and his words come from the heart and out of the mouth from a living person who is God in the flesh, whom you have a relationship with, of whom is more important to you and you love more than any other person in the world. So simply thinking about his words is not a relationship with him. You have to chew on them and meditate on them and ingest them and live by them. And that is fellowship with him. You actually have to be taken up by them. So what is it that's made you anxious this week? What is it that you come into this room, like certainly all of us can be in this category, like we've engaged our families, our friends, our work, our neighborhood or whatever. Certainly there's something that you come into this room with going, like some kind of anxiety, some kind of pressure, some kind of tense, uh, tenseness that you have. What does Jesus, if he were alive and he were speaking, what would he say to you? 
Like literally, if Jesus was here right now and he could speak to that, what would he say? Now, you don't have to imagine that because he is alive and he has spoken. Like you don't have to just imagine that he actually has spoken. If you're anxious this week, meditate on Jesus's words. Jesus says in Matthew 6 to look at the birds and the lilies. Consider them. Jesus says, hey, I take care of them. I'll take care of you too because you're more valuable than them. If you've been part of our church for any amount of time or any kind of church for any amount of time, you've heard these words. You could probably quote some of this, right? Like you, you know those things. But knowing what Jesus says about the birds and the lilies doesn't help you. Like quoting it doesn't help you. If Jesus is living and this is his promise, then how does it change your expectations and actions? What could obedience look like in light of these words? Jesus actually tells you what to do if you keep reading this passage. Jesus says, stop worrying about the basic needs that you have. Then he says, instead, seek to advance the kingdom and I'll make sure you have what you need. That's what he says. So Jesus tells us to take our eyes off of these earthly needs and put our hands to work advancing his purposes in earth instead. Abiding in Jesus here then looks like trusting that he truly loves you, that he will take care of you, and then taking all the like anxiety and fretting that you would do over those things and put those calories towards advancing his kingdom in the earth. That's how it says to obey this and like actually take on his words and let them live in you. Maybe you're feeling uh, depressed this morning and that your life isn't what you thought it would be. Meditate on Jesus's words. He says that I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What would it look like for you to meditate on that all day long? Like what would that do? Thank Jesus for coming and praising him as a life giver believing that his intention for you is abundant life. That is his heart, that is his love moving towards you and asking him to fulfill that like his good will in you. What happens if you're coming in this morning though with a troubled heart because someone has done wrong toward you? Like you're coming in offended or hurt when they harm you online or slander you or mischaracterize you or cheat you, what do you do? Do you fight for your reputation? Do you fight back? Do you run away? Jesus speaks to this. Jesus has words on this. Meditate on his words in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't resist someone who wants to slap you in the face. He says, like what's his command here for us? He says, don't resist them. And then he goes even further. Go ahead and let them slap you on the other cheek. Like Jesus gives us instruction and words of what it looks like for his words to abide in us. What do you do when you hear these words of Jesus? Are they just words on a page? Are they just words of wisdom from an ancient teacher? Or are they the living and active words of a living God who requires belief over unbelief, who requires obedience over disobedience? Earlier in chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Man, that's kind of hard for a gospel-centered church to kind of like, Jesus loves me, he loves me, he loves me. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. Then in chapter 15, verse nine, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so Jesus is receiving love from the Father, 
so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. Stay in it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided in his love. What does that mean? See, you see, Jesus doesn't bask in the love oblivious to his responsibilities to the Father. He doesn't just like bask in the love of the Father without taking on his responsibilities that he has in relationship to the Father. And likewise, we are to remain in his love. If we are to remain in his love, we have responsibilities to obey him. The reality of our love is to be proved then by our obedience and submission to his word. This sounds, as I was chewing on this this week, this sounds a little bit like how I've um, imperfectly in so many ways disciplined my children. Um, it sounds something like me regularly telling them when they're misbehaving, I love you. I love you. You can't do anything to mess up my love for you. I won't ever love you any less. I always love you. And then I ask them a question. Are you acting in line with my love? Are you acting in a manner that is in keeping with the love that I have for you? You see, my love is and will always be flowing towards my kids, but when they act in a misbehaving way, when they're whining or lying or whatever they're doing, they are functionally like blocking my love. They're stepping out of the love that I have for them. They can't, they can't feel it. They can't receive it. They can't engage it because they're acting in a way that is incongruent with the love that I have for them. It's like a branch removing itself from a vine of the nutrients and love that it has for them. My discipline then is in an effort to help them step back into alignment such that once again, they can receive the love that I have for them. It's remaining in love. Like it's remaining in his love. And this is what Jesus gets at with the parable of the soils when he talks about this seed that was sown on the rocky ground. This seed hears the word of God. This seed receives the word of God and it springs up quickly, but because of the trials, because of the difficulty of life, it doesn't continue to obey the words of Jesus. And so it falls away. But Jesus says, if, you, if my words are received, if they're remembered and believed and pondered and obeyed as living words of a living and present Lord of your life, then you can ask anything that you wish and I'll give it to you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, <clears throat> take notice in verse seven, how that verse begins. Look at it. If, right? If you abide, then I'll give you anything you wish. Verse seven says, if this, then this. If we abide in Jesus, then we can ask anything that we wish and he'll deliver on it. Think about this. If Jesus's words are in us, if his words are in us, if we're abiding in his love, if his words are speaking to us and directing us and his priorities are becoming our priorities, what do you suppose you begin to wish for in your prayers? What do you suppose comes out of you? If his words are flowing in you, then what do you, like, then when you talk to him, what do you suppose comes out of you? One pastor says, prayer is not for gratifying natural desires. It is for fruit bearing, for the glory of God. Another way of saying this is, 
If you want God to respond to your interests, you must be devoted to his interests. God is God. He does not run the world by hiring a consulting firm called mankind. He lets mankind share in the running of the world through prayer to the degree that we consult with him and get our goals and desires in tune with his purposes. And the evidence for this in the writing of John is 1 John 5, 14. He says, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Prayers for gratifying our desires, when those desires are submitted and purified and saturated with God and they coincide with his plans. If we ask anything according to his will, and John puts it another way in 1 John 3, 22, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. James puts it another way. James 4, 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You see, prayer is not for gratifying our natural desires. Prayer is for fruit bearing. It is for satisfying the desires and wishes of people who are devoted to what God desires, what his will is. Do your prayers seem to go unanswered? Like, do your prayers seem to like land flat? Like, do you often wonder like, where is God at? Like, I bring these things to him. Do I labor? Like, where is God at? What are you asking God to do? Like, what are you asking God to do for you? How are you asking him to move? Now, of course, Jesus invites us to bring all of our natural, daily uh, frustrations, hurts, needs to him, to bring those things to him, like little children that have lots of needs, right? He even instructs us on how to do that. He, in the Lord's Prayer, talks about us bringing our daily bread to him. But if we're gonna go there, you have to see that Jesus orients daily bread after we pray for his name to be hallowed after we pray for his kingdom to come, after we pray for his will to be done. Not that bringing those things is wrong, but what do we bring to him first? What do we most long for? What do we most long for to be done? So how do we put ourselves into alignment with the fruit God wants to produce in us? The fruit of hallowing his name, praying for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done in us. Well, how do we actually bring ourselves in alignment with that? How do we actually get those kinds of prayers in us? You get your word in you or his word in you. I mean, what I wanna do in the next couple of minutes that we have is just kind of like rapid fire, name seven ways to kind of step towards that. Um, super practical, um, really on the ground kind of ways for us to step towards what does it mean for us to get God's word in us so that we can abide in him. Now, quick caveat, most of these things are not gonna sound impressive. They're not gonna sound, um, I mean, I, I bet like most of you could have come up with this list, I, I think. I think most of you could come up with this list. Here's the fear I have though. While you could come up with this list, my fear is that most of us just don't do it though. Like most of us aren't doing these real practical, small things. And my hope is by putting them on the table in front of all of us, we would pick them up and start doing them, okay? So let me like walk through a bunch of these real quick. I've got seven here. You can make notes on these to remind you on what I'm putting before you and you could step towards them this week. The first one is plan. Plan. Doesn't sound very spiritual, incredibly necessary. 
Plan a place and a time when you will read the Bible and think about it each day. Put it on your calendar and make an appointment for it. Here's the thing. If Jesus is alive, if he's a real person, then make an appointment with him. If you make an appointment with me, I hope you put it on your calendar and keep it because I'm gonna show up and wonder where you are. It'll be on my calendar. I'll show up. Hey, do that with Jesus. Put it on your iPhone calendar, set a reminder, make a rhythm out of this. I find that if you don't book it, if you don't plan on it, if you don't plan it, you do not do it. So plan it and put it on your calendar every single day. Decide. Number two is decide. Decide ahead of time how you will read your Bible. Decide ahead of time how you're gonna read your Bible. Coming to your appointed time without a plan, in my experience, leads me to a spot where I'm just trying to figure out what I'm gonna do. I'm kind of like wasting my time because I'm not sure what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know what the meeting is about. I don't know what the point, I don't know what the goal or the agenda is. So I don't really spend my time very well. And then oftentimes I let my mind drift and I start thinking about all the things I have for the day that give me anxiety instead of taking in God's word. Man, make a plan for how you're going to walk through God's word. And I find that when I have a plan and I'm reading through a Bible, uh, through a book of the Bible, it, it actually raises my hunger because I know what we're even talking about the next meeting. I see where the conversation's going and I get excited about the next day where I get to pick up the conversation and keep it rolling. So read through books of the Bible together and do it in your discipleship groups. Our discipleship groups at Redeemer read through scripture together. If you're not in one, get in one. We'll be launching more this fall. But in your discipleship group, if you're not practically walking through the scripture, you should do that. Pick a book of the Bible and start walking through that. If you need help for plans on how to do that, hit up Kindle and I. We'd love to resource you there. And then stick to it. Um, number three, memorize. Memorize. Memorize verses or paragraphs or chapters of the Bible. Memorizing is hard work, especially if you're getting upper, like older in years. Like it's harder and harder to do the work of memorization. I used to memorize tons of scripture when I was little and I wish I kept it up. Um, memorize, commit scripture to memory because it will have the greatest effect on your prayer. If you get God's word hidden in your heart, it will come out. It will help you pray according to his will and the spirit of God. Think about the most spiritually mature, spiritually minded people in your life. Are they not oozing with scripture? Scripture seems to just come out of them in situations. Don't you wanna be like that? Aligned by God's word and abiding in him such that his word comes out of you. Retreat. Take a retreat. Like take a yearly retreat just to get away with your busy, from the busy world and saturate yourself in the Bible and in prayer. Just take some time away to just soak up God's words and pray and do it until you're rejuvenated, until you're filled up with the presence of God. Take a half a day at the park by yourself. Go on a camping trip all alone and don't take any other books with you except the Bible. I did that last summer twice and it was so hard for me because I just love being around people. I wanna have conversations. It was tough, but man, I felt um, filled up coming home because all I was doing was reading through scripture and praying and journaling which takes me to my next one, journal, journal. Keep a journal and write out your thoughts as you meditate on scripture. We see more when we write than when we just read. Perhaps you've heard that phrase, um, writing yourself clear. Like when you slow down, and I mean, I read slow and I write slow. 
like so slow. Um, but journaling actually slows and focuses my mind on what I'm receiving from God and what I want to say back to him. And you don't have to do it every time you're praying. You don't have to do it every time you're reading the Bible or every day. But writing is a way of seeing that is deeper and sharper than most other ways. So try that out. And then read. Don't just read the Bible. Read great Christian writers who know God deeply and then saturate their writing with the Bible and are able to take you deep. So this almost sounds counterintuitive. I'm saying read the Bible. But like, think about this. Think of um, biblical writers who are great knowers and lovers of God and wanna bring you along on the journey. Now, there's a lot of crappy books out there. There's a lot of crappy books. And there's a lot of good books that kind of function a little surfacy, and they're fine. I read those books too. Grab a book that takes you deep into the ways and the purposes and the person of Jesus and God. Like, get those kinds of books in your hands, the thicker kind of books, and just hang with it. Just hang with it. 15 minutes a day. If you spent 15 minutes a day in, like as you're going to sleep or uh, just reading your, a book for 15 minutes a day, and I read slow, if you do that 15 minutes a day, you'll read 13 books a year. Um, dedicate yourself to that and read those kinds of books. And if you need suggestions for a summer book, hit up Ron, hit up me, hit up Kindle. We'd love to make some suggestions for you to get your teeth into those kinds of books. Okay, finally, keep. Keep the living Jesus in front of you. Keep the living Jesus before you as you read the words of the Bible and as you talk to him in prayer. Remind yourself repeatedly as you read the Bible, maybe even like right at the top of your journal, that this is the living, speaking Jesus. His words are not dead. He is not a dead teacher. He is living who desires for your joy to be made full because you are his friend. You are his friend. We didn't read this in our passage, but no, I think we did actually read this part. Jesus says in verses 10 and 11 to keep his commandments so you can remain in his love. And he tells us why. So that the joy that he has in the Father, he can give to you. So you can actually be filled up with his joy. Then he moves on to verse 12, which we didn't read. Um, he says something stunning here. Absolutely stunning. Jesus tells us that we are his friends. If you do what he says, you are his friends. Like, let that soak in for a moment. The living creator, Jesus in the flesh, you are his friend. He doesn't treat you like a slave or a servant who's unaware of what he's about. He says, servants and slaves don't know what uh, their master's about. No, no, I've shared, you, I've shared with you everything. I've shared with you who I am and what I'm about. You're my friends. He tells us that we're his friends, not because we, we've done enough things to earn his friendship. No, verse 16, he says that he's the one who's chosen us as his friend. He has made us his friends, not the other way around. Man, perhaps this morning you're asking how you can be a friend of Jesus and receive his love. What does it look like for you to earn the love of Jesus? Here's the good news for those who wanna be attached to Jesus and receive that kind of love. It isn't earning. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say or do to earn the love of Jesus. You see, we love Jesus because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. 
We didn't choose him, he chose us. And he chose us to walk out our faith though in obedience to him, verse 16 of our text. Apart from Christ then you can't do anything. The hope of the love of Jesus that's been demonstrated for us is that in our sin, in our brokenness, he loves us. And this is also good news for those of you who feel weary this morning. Those of you who feel weary and think you need to muster up strength in order to pursue knowing Christ. The fruit, our changed lives and obedience that keeps us in the love of Christ is simply evidence of a relationship that we have with them. It's not evidence of like, it's not us earning that relationship. The, the, the beauty of the gospel is that it is a relationship that is initiated through and by his sovereign love. Therefore, he's got you. He'll keep you in it. And this is a powerful love. He says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Would you stand with me? Jesus loves you so much. The love that he has for you and me is so great that in our sin, in our brokenness, in our rebellion, he didn't say, do better. He didn't say, pull yourself up. He didn't like rub your nose in it. He demonstrated ultimate love by coming and living a perfect life and laying his life down, he says. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. If you believe in Jesus, if you attach yourself to Jesus, if you receive the love of Jesus, it is to receive his love that he has for you in his dying and resurrecting for your sins and then committing your entire life to passionately receive him, receive his words and all that that entails. Man, if that's your hope this morning, then we invite you to come and take communion because you're a Christian. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is we tear a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. Our stoneware is wine, our glass is juice, and we'll have servers here in the middle um, and on both sides of the balcony. And we also have an allergy-free option here to my right. Man, if that's your hope this morning, if you see Jesus not as someone to work for, not someone to earn things from, but someone who sees you in your plight, sees you in your brokenness and moves towards you and takes away your sin, laying down his life for you so that you can then live in his love by committing your entire life to serve him, to love him, to pursue him, to actually submit your life under his words. Man, if that's you, we're so glad you're here. Come and take communion and celebrate that union with us that we have in Jesus. But if that's not you, then we invite you to stay in your seat. Um, this meal that we'll take in communion is a celebratory meal of what Jesus has done for us, not what we can do for him. Um, but if that is your hope, if you do want to see Jesus in that way, we invite you to come and receive prayer this morning. We have people um, here in the front and at the exits that would love to pray that over you. That goes for anyone in this room that you have 
a troubled heart this morning, places where you feel missed or struggling, come and receive prayer this morning. We would love to pray the truth of the gospel over you and agree with the words of Jesus over you. So come and receive prayers as well. I'm gonna pray for us and those receiving communion will come and take it. And then those receiving prayer will come as well. Let me pray for us. Father, you, you see us, you know us, and you sent Jesus to us. You didn't leave us on our own. You didn't scoff at us. You came as the perfect sacrifice. so that we could be attached to you, so we could receive life from you, so we could actually find life abundantly, a full, joyful life in you. Like this self-sacrificing, all-giving God, you are incredible. So God, would you orient us around your words, not the other way around? Would you take your word and put it in our hearts. Would we be known more in this city as people who take you at your word? And it would change the way we parent. It would change our marriages. It would change the way we work. It would change everything about our church. It is the most urgent thing for us to be attached to you. So Father God, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Spirit of the living God, would you speak to us even now as we come and take communion and give us joy to walk in that. In your name, amen.